Good morning, Dr. Philip George. Good morning. Good morning. 11th of November. Are you going shopping later? Oh, that's tomorrow. It's Singles Day. (laughs) It's today, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, look, I think I'm going to try my luck. (laughs) It'll be my first time on the 11th of uh, November to try. 11-11 sale. (laughs) Okay. Let's get to some articles that we found that were very interesting. And let's see what your opinions are on them now. The first article, it's an interview, actually with this award-winning journalist. His name is Robert Whittaker. And he's very concerned that psychiatric medications do more harm than good. So in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, he actually argues that medications for mental illness, although they give many people short-term reliefs, they can cause long-term harm. Is that true, doctor? I have to admit, I haven't read the book, but I've read some of his articles and the comments from the American Psychiatric Association as well. I think it's suggested that the book is actually flawed in many areas. Really? Uh, Yeah, it sounds like he's actually highlighting studies that he chooses and not really looking at others that contradict what he's reporting. Mm. For example, there are studies that actually show people not on medication have considerable harms, including suicide, imprisonment, homelessness, loss of work, etc. And considerable changes in brain anatomy. And in fact, in schizophrenia, we know that the brain anatomy may be changed due to the illness even before medication is started. So, you know, if you don't include those studies, and then you say, whoa, the brain's changed. How can you attribute it to medicines? So yeah, and, and we also know that in anxiety and depression, there is actually decay and death of numerous nerve cells before treatment starts. And due to the illness itself, months after treatment, there's actually evidence of these nerve cells regrowing. So in fact, I think it's really more of a myth saying that you know it causes more harm. Mm. Uh, And this book that he's written actually references some researchers who have declared funding for Scientology. Mm. Oh, really? I would be very careful accepting the contents. In fact, in in his references, there are anti-psychiatry writers like Robert Lang and Thomas Sars from a long time ago. They, They were actually psychiatrists who condemned psychiatry. So I don't know. I think it's not a real balanced look at everything. The world in lockdown, schools have been closed. Now schools around the world have worked hard to convince students and their families that the online education that they are providing is the same high quality as the in-class education they used to provide. But are teachers suffering a burnout because of online classes? Uh, Doctor, what is burnout and how can it be treated? You know, I can relate to this. Uh, In IMU, we have gone in a short while from in-campus and clinical teaching to now pure theory online teaching. It's not ideal in a medical school because experiential learning, you know, Mm. um, hands-on is just as important as just knowledge. Students need to, you know, interview real patients, examine them, observe how procedures and surgeries are done. But of course, the plan is to hopefully restart this when CMCO is over. So the students are stressed and so too are the teachers. Um, Also, teaching online means developing new online teaching aids. Mm. You know, it can... It's actually quite a torturous thing trying to do a voiceover for a PowerPoint presentation. It takes hours. And imagine if you have 10 presentations to do. So you're surely not just doing a nine to five job anymore. And mm. sometimes, you know, that, you know, the lines are blurred. You're working through the night, you're working on the weekends. 
So burnout is when our stress levels have exceeded our threshold. Everyone has their own threshold. So it's not across the board the same for everyone. Okay. You, know, you see your friend, well, he can cope with, you know, thousand and one things, but mm. you may not. And when that threshold is crossed, we have symptoms, you know, stress symptoms like headache, stomach ache, sleeplessness, irritability, anger, feeling lethargic, and a multitude of others, both physical and psychological. Now, um, with school being out till end of the year here in Malaysia and online classes continuing indefinitely, mm. what can teachers like yourself do to ensure that they do not suffer from burnout while still putting their class as the priority in education? Well, I think the real issue and the thing that we need to work on is building our own mental health resilience. It's not just tackling this new way of teaching and, and dealing with our, you know, with our career but it's also the pandemic in the background mm. so i think we need to learn to build our own buffers like daily exercise a balanced diet cutting down on caffeine and alcohol mindfulness yoga breathing exercises meditation prayers laughter journaling talking to others and many many more we need to do an audit and identify how much of our time and effort is spent on these mental health hygiene techniques? This will, you know, truly prevent burnout. Okay. Of course, if we don't manage our stress and persist to be in burnout, we can develop depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, hypertension, diabetes, and many other NCDs. Now, Doc, last week, Budget 2021 for Mental Health Services and Infrastructure actually observed a whopping 61% reduction from $69 million in 2020 to $20. 26 million in 2020. And this is apparently the lowest ever monetary allocation towards mental health services and infrastructure here in Malaysia. Now, as a mental health practitioner, doctor, how do you feel about this cut in the budget? Oh, definitely terrible. <laughs> mental health is actually described as the shadow pandemic of the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, it's, gonna, it's bringing and it's going to bring wide-ranging adverse mental health consequences to everyone. Uh, in fact, Prof. Victor Seng from the U.S. describes it as the fourth wave of the pandemic. With more cases of COVID-19, the demand towards mental health services is only going to increase during and after this pandemic. In fact, the WHO has called for governments to increase investments, not decrease. Yeah. Uh, so I'm truly disappointed. And, you know, mental health has for far too long been the poorest, you know, relative of healthcare. It's the, you know, one that gets the least investment in spite of the mobility service in Malaysia suggesting it's only on the rise. In fact, psychiatric units often are in the oldest parts of the hospitals. They lack space, they lack staff, they lack resources. You know, having worked in Australia, I know we are far from being close to providing adequate mental health services and infrastructure. And with the poor regard and understanding by people in authorities, sadly, it may remain that way. In fact, this budget, it seems, is making us go backwards rather than forwards. Now, are you personally seeing a spike in cases of depression, anxiety and other disorders at your practice, doctor, in this time of pandemic? I am seeing an increase. In fact, now I have a wait list and I'm really sorry that's happening. But uh, we have very uh, few psychiatrists in the country. Our mental health specialist numbers are very low, according to the population. So, you know, 
I think the important thing is that people know there are crisis helplines if they do need help during crisis. But otherwise, yes, the numbers have been increasing for sure. But how will this huge cut in budgets impact mental health services in Malaysia for 2021 then, Doctor? Well, you know, I think one of the things that they did increase was emoluments, suggesting that maybe they're going to have more job positions for people in mental health. Uh, that's a good thing. But, you know, if the infrastructure and everything else is not increased, then how, where do you put them? In fact, in the clinic that I work in, we have to share spaces. And that's inappropriate in a psychiatric setting. You can't have, you know, another patient hearing another patient's, you know, story. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, but, you know, if we don't have enough, then the limited access can result in deteriorating mental health conditions. And that can lead to increase in suicide, self-harm, self-medicating, uh, substance abuse and alcohol use. And, you know, we, we can't be sure about how all this is going to go. Yet. Now, this final article, Doctor, and it comes with a video as well. It talks about how weather can actually impact our mental health. And it talks about this thing called the seasonal affective disorder. What is the scientific reason behind people getting affected by the weather, especially like, you know, your mental health? Yeah. So actually seasonal affective disorder is a condition that's more in the temperate climate. And it's a type of depression that's related to changes in season. Uh, in most cases, it, uh, seasonal affective disorders appears during late fall or early winter and then go away by you know, spring and summer. Uh, the symptoms are usually the same as with depression, but in some, it may be also associated with oversleeping, comfort eating, weight gain, tiredness, and generally lassitude, like low energy. Uh, some of the causes include first reduced sunlight exposure. So it's not the cold. It's not because it's so cold. That's why you develop depression, mm -hmm. but it's actually the reduction in sunlight exposure which then leads to decreased vitamin D and melatonin. And both of these actually influence serotonin levels. So serotonin is that neurochemical in the brain that is known to be the final pathway in triggering depression if it is at low levels. Okay. So what can we do? That means just go to a pet store, get a basking light, and then we should be fine. <laughs> Actually, light therapy is the treatment. Really? Oh, oh serious? Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So ultraviolet light therapy is actually the treatment for people with uh, seasonal affective disorder. So we don't actually use medications. Uh, light, just exposing them to the light therapy actually helps them to recover. So here in Malaysia, since we don't have these four seasons where it does not happen to us? I have not seen or heard of a case here in Malaysia <laughs> or in the tropics. Uh, but actually, there have been reports in some tropical countries, especially those with prolonged periods of downcast skies and mm. lack of sunlight. So, you know, if you have a monsoon season going on for months and you can't see the sun very much, I think then there is a risk of it happening. Um, it can maybe also occur in people who, you know, self-impose themselves into locking themselves away in a room with blackout curtains and don't get any sun exposure. You know, the funniest thing in Malaysia is we got so much sun, but our vitamin D efficiency rates are pretty high. Really? Wow. So everyone just hides inside. That's why they don't get In enough AC vitamin offices, D. right? You go from your house into your car, it's air-conditioned and you've got your, you know, sun shield and 
then you go into your office and you don't get any sun. So vitamin D deficiency can also lead to depression. So, you know, I think we should actually reconsider if we can get some sun exposure. And it gets so worse, this- especially when we're told to stay at home right now, isn't it? Yeah, but I think with this uh, CMCO, we can actually get out and exercise and we can actually get some sunlight as well. So this sunlight that we need is direct sunlight, not like uh, if you have windows in your office, if you sit next to a window and you see the sun. Does it work? No, because it's got to be ultraviolet radiation. So, you know, most of the windows actually block some of that radiation as well. So, you know, you need to get direct sunlight exposure. 